Good morning, sisters and brothers. It is a great joy and privilege for me to share the Word of God with you this morning, and I'm so blessed to be here. Uh, this is my first time in uh, Wilmore, Kentucky, and in the state of Kentucky, but I've heard so many wonderful things about Asbury Theological Seminary. In fact, when I was a, a young pastor in Russia, uh, we had missionaries from the United States who were graduates uh, of uh, Asbury Theological Seminary. And I'm also very encouraged to see my colleague bishops, uh, El Gwyn and Lindsay Davis here among us. Uh, they, were, uh, they are such an encouragement for me in the Council of Bishops. And also, some of you may not know, but uh, I studied in the uh, Catholic School of Theology in the late 90s. And uh, one of my first exercises was to attend uh, a Methodist meeting, and uh, it was chaired by Bishop Lindsay Davis. And uh, I, you know, as I struggled through uh, learning my uh, uh, English language and the theological terms, I was so encouraged by uh, Bishop Davis, who included me in that meeting and encouraged me to uh, further my study. And uh, it's great to be here, sisters and brothers. I give thanks to God for hospitality of uh, uh, Dr. Mark Elliott and uh, Darlene, who uh, host me in their wonderful house, where I see uh, many Russian souvenirs and uh, just feel, feels just like home. So this morning I want to share uh, the, the message which is titled, uh, The Way of Christ. This passage from the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 8, it was a, a moment of truth for the disciples when Jesus tells them plainly that this, his way is going to be a way of uh, suffering and rejection. Rejection from religious leaders and community of his time, and it will be a way of suffering and death. It is really a difficult message for the disciples. I want to share a picture uh, for you that comes from a Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg, Russia. I hope you can visit uh, this wonderful city someday. I know it's a little bit far, but uh, if you can search it on the internet, it's called Descent from the Cross by uh, Rembrandt. And in that picture, uh, you could see people have different uh, emotions and feelings, uh, some of them are almost fainting, some of them are crying, some of them just uh, kind of feel very depressed and not knowing what to do next as they take the body of Christ from the cross. And this is part of the gospel story, that Jesus is going to be crucified and going to be rejected by the people. Here, the evangelist Mark shows the culmination of Jesus' teaching and his way. And this passage raises the question for the disciples and for many of us today living in the contemporary world, just like in the Shakespeare's Hamlet, to be or not to be. What does it mean for us today to be a disciple of Christ? Jesus wants to make sure that the disciples know that they may have the same experience as they follow Christ. They may suffer and be rejected and can be crucified. Each person has to decide for himself or herself, what does it mean to follow Christ today? You can try to uh, reform a church in our modern world or challenge the status quo of your community, and I'm sure you will find some resistance and rejection and maybe sometimes a hostility. I live in the context of Russia and uh, uh, former Soviet Union countries where uh, being Methodist and being Protestants is very not, you know, not very popular. In fact, if you are belong to a Methodist church today, 
people may laugh at you or uh, mock you, and uh, oftentimes they generalize and they think all these Protestants are kind of sects, and it's very difficult for some of our people. In, in some of the places in Central Asia, like Kyrgyzstan, for example, we have young people who come to me and they say they don't want to tell their parents that they are Christians, because if they do, they might be rejected by their own family. I want to share a story with you about uh, Pastor Kim Yong-hak. Uh, you can see the picture. Uh, I found this story in the archives of uh, Vladivostok, Russia. Vladivostok is you know, uh, in the far east of Russia, in the eastern part, uh, not far actually from the North Korean border. And uh, uh, Reverend Kim, uh, his, there, there some material in the archive of Vladivostok you can find today, even in Russian and in English and some of that in Korean. And what I learned in that archive is that uh, Kim Yong-hak was a, a missionary uh, who was originally from Korea, serving in Vladivostok, Russia, supported by the Methodist Episcopal Church South. And Bishop Lambuth, maybe some of you know him, uh, about him, he was overseeing that area of uh, Far East Russia and Vladivostok and part of China. And uh, Pastor Kim was pastor of uh, uh, our Methodist congregation in 1923, the record says they had 37 uh, members in Vladivostok Church, and in 1925, they had already 64 members in that church. But then, uh, as you know, in 1917, we had a, a communist revolution. And so, surely, uh, soonly, soon after that, the Bolsheviks began to uh, close churches or prohibit religious freedom, and uh, our church uh, faced this uh, challenge, to be or not to be. And... Uh, the uh, Pastor Kim was uh, invited by KGB people and, and they told him you need to close the church and uh, uh, otherwise you can be arrested. And so they had this uh, congregation meeting uh, in our building uh, in Vladivostok and they discussed some of the issues and some of them were members, uh, some of them were citizens of Korea and for them going back to Korea means they go under the uh, occupation of Japan. And you can see in the picture, there's a stamp in the passport uh, of Pastor Kim that says uh, Japan, uh, and some of his letters also he wrote uh, later to his family. And finally, they decided some of them would return to Japan, some of them would stay in Russia and risk to be arrested, some of them would go to China and start their new uh, life there. And uh, they decided uh, that they actually asked Pastor Kim if he would be going back to Korea. But uh, he decided to send his family and, and small children back to Korea, but then he said to the congregation, he said, I will stay here because my people are still staying here. And he said, even if there is one Methodist who would decide to stay in Vladivostok, Russia, I will stay here because they are my sheep and I am their shepherd. And he did stay. And after some years, we know he got arrested and sent to a Gulag camp. Gulag is, as some of you are probably familiar, Gulag is a system of camps in the Soviet Russia where they put people in prison, especially those who thinks, who are, whose thinking contradicts the communist ideology. And so he was arrested, and what we know today is that in early 30s, he died in one of the Gulag camps in Siberia a martyr of faith who was faithful and carried the cross of Christ to his last breath. 
And so, sisters and brothers, when I hear stories like this, you know, it also reminds me of my own family. I want to share a little bit of my personal story. This is a, a picture of my grandmother with her eight children. And back in, uh, in the in 1920s, 1930s, my family who immigrated from Korea at the end of the 19th century, they settled in the Vladivostok area of Russia and they had, you know, their own uh, diaspora villages uh, speaking in Korean language. And my grandmother, I still remember, she never spoke uh, much of Russian when I was growing up. But uh, they told me the story that in 1937, uh, Joseph Stalin decided to deport all Koreans from Far East Russia to Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan. That's how I was born in Kazakhstan. And so uh, in one day, they all, they all were put on the train without knowing how long the trip would be and where they are going. And my mother was three years old. My aunt was born on that train. And for many years, she did not have a proper uh, birth certificate uh, because they did not know where she was born and did the, didn't know where, what city to put in. It was kind of, you know, we laugh and cry at the same time when we hear that story over and over in my family. And, uh, and what I know from my parents and grandparents that many people died on that train. The children especially, they did not have enough food and water, and they did not even have a chance to properly bury their relatives. So they would just uh, put them in uh, some kind of a, you know, like a, uh, I don't know what they call it. Uh, they make this uh, of the haze and uh, they cover the body and just uh, throw it off the train as, they, as the train moves. So it was a very dramatic part of my family. And um, until 1953, my mother and my aunts and uncles, they were not allowed to leave Kazakhstan to get uh, you know, opportunity to be educated in other parts of the Soviet Union. Uh, only when Stalin died in 1953, they were able to move freely uh, around the Soviet Union to get their education. But this story really uh, reminds me of all the suffering and oppression uh, my family endured. And as I reflect you know, on the Christian story, uh, on the story of the disciples and the story of Jesus. You know, it reminds me how much suffering people had to endure. You know, Pastor Kim in, the, in Vladivostok area and my own family. And Christians to this day in some parts of the world, they suffer because, just because they follow Jesus Christ. And so I'm thinking also, sisters and brothers, as we live today in a, in a free society, you know, able to express our our faith and having, you know, our supermarkets full of food and choices. And, uh, and I question myself, you know, what does it mean for us to be a Christian? You know, I personally never experienced war or hunger or persecution or imprisonment. I never experienced anything the way, uh, the way people did in the uh, first part of the 20th century in my country. And yet, I believe every generation of Christian people are called by God to be faithful and fruitful in the context we live today. We are called to be faithful disciples of Jesus Christ here in Wilmer, Kentucky, or in Moscow, Russia, in spite of challenges and temptations of our time. And so Jesus calls us to be faithful as we follow him. You know, uh, I had this wonderful experience. Uh, Dr. Elliot took me to a Shaker community uh, a couple days ago. And uh, it's interesting as I, you know, was walking on that property and learning the story of, of their journey, it dawned on me that uh, just like us Methodists and Wesleyans, uh, they wanted to go on perfection. 
They wanted to build a perfect community, uh, you know, just like heaven on earth. And they used their best technology and, you know, uh, best skills that they could uh, use to build this wonderful uh, community. But there was one problem uh, that was significant for us Wesleyans, and that is, is that they wanted to flee this world. They wanted to flee this world and, and be far from the temptation and challenges of, uh, of, this, uh, of their time. But we as Methodists, as Wesleyans, many of us, we know that, as John Wesley said, the whole world is my parish. And that means we actually go into the world to save the world, to redeem the world, to share the message of Jesus Christ, even though that means sometimes suffering and rejection. And Apostle Peter, you know, known for his emotions and temper, he wanted to actually stop Jesus. He, 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 does, he didn't want Jesus to suffer, and that's perfectly understandable from our human uh, uh, point of view that, you know, if I know my family is going to suffer, going to some place, I don't want them to go there. Uh, but Jesus uses these harsh words, you know, uh, reminding Peter that we need to think not of earthly things, but of heavenly things. The cost of discipleship is very high. And what would you do with your soul? What choices would you make today? You know, I want to share also the story uh, that was very uh, formative to me as I was going through uh, my Christian formation, especially in the first years of uh, my Christian journey and then at seminary, uh, the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Some of you may be familiar with uh, his story, but it's very close to me because you know, we were in the, in the World War II and uh, Nazi Germany, you know, invaded our land. And uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of those pastors in Germany who decided to openly oppose Nazi Germany. Uh, there was uh, one of my trips to Germany. I experienced this. Uh, some of you may have heard about Barman Declaration, where uh, churches had to decide on which side they are in. And uh, some churches said, oh, you know, uh, Adolf Hitler is kind of like a anointed by God, and, you know, he, he used to come to church and kind of had this posture of uh, humility and, you know, faithfulness to, uh, to God, but, and some interpreted that, you know, he's a good Christian leader, and they, they supported him, but then some other churches realized where this is going, and they had to decide whether to, you know, comply with the regime or stand in the op open opposition to Nazi Germany. And they did. They had this Barman Declaration where they actually condemned the Nazi regime and was openly, were openly against it, but many of them suffered reject, and were rejected, rejected by the Nazi regime. And so Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of them, and he was arrested and put in the concentration camp, and we know that he died just a few weeks uh, before the Soviet army you know, invaded Germany and uh, uh, won the war, he was executed because Hitler was afraid that all these you know, people who think otherwise can be a threat to his uh, rule. And so uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he wrote this book. It's actually called uh, Cost of Discipleship. Anybody read this book? Here, many of you. So if you haven't read this book, I highly recommend because in that book, he talks about the cost of discipleship and he talks about cheap grace, you know, and uh, uh, the, the, the danger of, uh, of understanding grace cheaply. And so I want to reflect through that also story that when Jesus says to his disciples, he talks about three things, and I want to emphasize them today. 
He says, first, the disciple, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself. You know, when you hear the phrase, deny yourself, how do you feel about this? Honestly, I don't feel comfortable. You know, I have my plans and my dreams and my visions and, you know, my priorities, you know, my calendar is full of things that I want to do. But when Jesus says, deny yourself, it's kind of hard. We often come to God with our own agenda or list of requirements and wishes. Our head and heart are already filled with prejudices and convictions, and therefore we cannot accept God's will often. One can say that we, we have the ears but cannot hear, we have the eyes but cannot see. And that is why Jesus says that if you want to go the way of Christ, you must first of all deny yourself, your own agenda, your wishes, but it is not easy for some to do. Some people may cry, others will have to leave their pride and vanity, the rich man will stop rely on his estate and bank accounts. When we deny ourselves, we let God live in our hearts and transform us in God's holy image. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer realized it. In some of his book, and I'm going to paraphrase his thoughts, he shared that only when he experienced the fullness of earthly life, he came, uh, he came to faith. When he fully denied his desires to become somebody, a holy man or sinner, a preacher or reader, a sick or healthy, only when he has gone through many successes and failures, only when he gave himself into the hands of God, he seriously accepted the suffering of God in this world, not only his own suffering. Only then he experienced unity with Christ in the Gethsemane. Only then you become truly human and truly Christian. This story really inspires me because, you know, I want to share a little bit of my personal story also. I had this dream of becoming a Soviet engineer uh, as I was, uh, you know, growing up in the Cold War, and some of you have experienced that, the same thing here, you know, we were taught that the United States is going to, you know, throw a nuclear missile, nuclear bomb on our country, and uh, we had to protect our country. And, you know, I still remember in uh, high school years, we had to put gas mask on our face and get under the table as though it would save you. And, uh, <laughs> and, and the teachers would tell us, you know, we had to, you know, study well and build communism and protect our country. And then, you know, I, I wanted to become a, either a, a pilot or a, a, an army officer, but my, my, my eyes were not so good for that. So uh, I decided I, I go for engineering and I will uh, build weapons uh, and protect my country. So I went to the Technical uh, University in Moscow, and uh, we had this special uh, course on uh, military uh, things. And uh, one day a week, we would dedicate the whole day for this study, and we would come to the to the auditorium, and uh, they would have a soundproof curtains, and uh, we would sign contract. You know, every uh, lecture that we would not share this with anybody for 15 years, and uh, they would show us a, a documentary about U.S. nuclear missiles, which is supposed to be top secret, right? But uh, we all studied that, and uh, at the end of the lecture, uh, the colonel would come and say. Uh, you are Soviet engineers, you need to build better missiles to protect our country. And so with that kind of a mindset, I grew up and uh, I thought, you know, this is my dream. I'm going to build weapons and I'm going to be rich and, you know, uh, all these things. Until I, I came to Methodist Church in Moscow. And uh, I met a missionary from the United States. His name is uh, Jonathan Park. He's now a pastor in San Diego. In fact, he was studying at Asbury for one year, I think. 
and then he transferred to uh, Fuller uh, Seminary in California, closer to his home. So, uh, so I met him there, and uh, you know, I, I, I was very puzzled because my image of Christians were very negative. I thought, oh, Christians, these weird people who wear black robes and uh, never smile and pray all the time, you know, I don't understand what, what it means. And then my stereotype of Americans, of course, was very negative that they want to uh, destroy our country. And uh, he came in 92 when uh, uh, Soviet Union just collapsed in 91 and we had empty stores, nothing to buy. The inflation was going like crazy every, every day. You, you have rubles, you want to buy something to spend them today because tomorrow they will be devalued, but there's nothing in the store to buy. So it was very uh, um, terrible, uh, difficult time. And uh, he was there in Moscow at that time, and so I was very puzzled why he's here. And I asked him, why did you come to Russia? And he said, I came to share the love of Jesus Christ. And I thought, hmm, that's very interesting. Maybe he's a CIA agent trying to, uh, <laughs> uh, trying to collect some information about us. But, uh, but what really inspired me is that he, you know, he is very open, very joyful, and, uh, and very sincere. And I thought, well, if this is a Christian faith, I want to know more. And he invited me to church uh, to come on a regular basis and do Bible study, and I surely came. And, you know, as I learned the Bible more and more, I realized that this is the way I want to go. And I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior after a few weeks uh, in the church, and uh, my life just changed dramatically. And I realized that my dream of building weapons and protecting my country is not valid anymore. You know, I, you know, that's, you know, I, I need to deny that, that dream. And uh, uh, even though it was not so difficult for me, but I, I rather wanted to invest myself in serving people and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, sisters and brothers, I want to challenge you today. What does it mean for us today to deny ourselves? And then the second part of uh, Jesus' message, he says, take up your cross. And as you you know, may well know that in Roman Empire, if you see somebody carrying the cross on, your, on the streets of your city, you know that this person is going to be executed. And they probably committed some kind of a crime. And you know that Romans, they were so, you know, sophisticated in punishing people and uh, making even death a very difficult process that you are crucified on the cross and you cannot breathe and you die on the cross uh, suffering. And... Uh, Jesus says, you know, that we are called to carry that cross. And it doesn't mean that we, Jesus wants us to die on the cross today, but it means for us today that Jesus wants us to be faithful and fruitful to the very day, last breath of our life. Jesus wants us to commit every day of our lives to him. You know, in my Russian context, I don't know how that works in the, in the English language, but in our Russian language, I hear uh, often this phrase misused. You know, some people say in Russia that, oh, he has, he has this quarrelsome wife, that's his cross. You know, or he has this, you know, husband who drinks too much, you know, that's her cross. Or they have neighbors who are, you know, very loud all the time, that's, that's their cross. But we know that this has nothing to do with what Jesus means. Carrying the cross meaning to be, means to be faithful to Christ every day of our lives until our last breath. It means giving everything to God. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he understood this message. 
I want to quote him, uh, uh, share a quote from him. He says, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is the dying of the old man, which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus, it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And there was one English officer in the concentration camp uh, who uh, actually witnessed the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he would say that Dietrich Bonhoeffer radiated light in the place of darkness. He exemplified humility and gentleness. He was a man for whom God was truly very close. And I'm sure he realized that being open and faithful to God in the time of Nazi regime, it means that he could be executed at any day, at any moment. But he was ready and willing to be faithful to God in these circumstances. When I hear, you know, when I listen to this kind of experience, I always question myself, and I question, want to question all of us, what does it mean for us today to carry the cross? And then the third part that Jesus says, follow me. As we know, to be a disciple in times of Jesus meant literally to follow the teacher. Today, we have a different education style. We, most of the time, we sit in the classroom and the professor gives us a lecture and we write something, write our notes, and then we pass the exam. And that's most of us learn today. But in times of Jesus, there were no classrooms, uh, no seminary buildings. People actually lived every day with Jesus. They would go and fish together, they would cook meal together, they would preach together, and then they would you know, rest together at night and pray together. It was a very intense experience. Uh, it reminds me kind of like uh, the way we raise our children. You know, my, my wife always uh, joke and tease me that uh, our kids, you know, actually the way they move hands and talk, it's very kind of like a mini copy of us. But uh, it reminds me also about imitating Christ and being disciple of Christ. That means to follow Jesus, that we want to follow Jesus and imitate him in everything we do. And that means every day, a regular life with Christ and relationship with Christ in imitating everything Jesus does in his ministry. As uh, Dieter Bonhoeffer puts it, he says, not hero worship, but intimacy with Christ. You know, meaning not just, you know, uh, intensive uh, experience in one week and then nothing else in other week, but everyday life, intimacy with Christ in following Jesus Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And so, sisters and brothers, in conclusion, I want to challenge you today to go boldly on the way of Christ. The reality might be different today in your context or my context, but we are all called to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And let us partner in mission around the world as we send missionaries and prepare pastors here and leaders for the transformation of the world. Let us actually lose our, ourselves for the Christ's sake. It is a joy and privilege to be a disciple 
of Jesus Christ. And the way of Christ today means losing yourself for Christ and for the gospel. The way of Christ means denying yourself every day and let Jesus reign in your heart, mind, and soul. The way of Christ means taking up your cross every day, even in face of hostility and rejection. The way of Christ means following Jesus wherever he leads you out of your comfort zone. The way of Christ means to act boldly when someone separates mother from her child. The way of Christ also means joy of one sinner repenting and entering the family of God. The way of Christ also means hope when you hold the hand of your dying church member. The way of Christ also means friendship when you celebrate transformation of life with your sisters and brothers in your church. The way of Christ also means victory when you are weak, but God is strong. Sisters and brothers, we are the followers of Christ, going into the world with one mission, to share the love and the way of Christ so that everyone can have the opportunity to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow Jesus Christ. May God bless you as you go on this mission. Amen.